0: Welcome back to Not Another Fucking Elf, the character-based podcast about Lord of the Rings, hosted by me, Catherine Bray, and my fellow Tolkien obsessive, Paul Ridd. Hello. Before we get going, let's just quickly revisit what this podcast is all about for anyone tuning in for the first time.
1: So we wanted a format where we could talk to each other about our shared obsession with Lord of the Rings, and we thought that an interesting way into talking about the text, the adaptations and whatnot would be through talking about a different character each week. Partly because there are just so many different kinds of characters, each with their own characteristics, motivations and philosophies, which provides an interesting way to talk about the text as a whole. And partly because there are just loads and loads of them, so we can just keep doing this for ages.
0: For as long as we like. (laughs) And the podcast is called Not Another Fucking Elf, as an homage to Professor J.R.R. Tolkien's friend Hugo Dyson, who supposedly, rather rudely, said this in response to hearing a bit of Tolkien's writing read out to him by his good friend, the Professor.
1: So that's sort of like, not another fucking elf, right? That's yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, Just to make it 100% crystal clear, this was Hugo Dyson who said that, not C.S. Lewis. I feel we need to keep drilling this into people's minds because it's a popular misconception.
0: Yes, for too long C.S. Lewis has been besmirched and he was nothing but kind, I think, about Lord of the Rings. So who are we discussing today, Paul?
1: Today we are discussing Merry,
0: or to give him his full name, Meriadoc Brandybuck, Hobbit of the Shire, as played by Dominic Monaghan in Peter Jackson's trilogy. Pipeweed aficionado, member of the Fellowship of the Ring, sometime servant of Théoden King, and best friend and cousin of Peregrine Took and Frodo Baggins.
1: Just as a quick reminder, we should mention at this point that any and every plot detail from The Lord of the Rings is fair game here. We're assuming that there is no such thing as spoilers.
0: Yeah, if you're listening to a character-by-character character podcast series about Lord of the Rings, please don't complain about Lord of the Rings. Spoilers. Yeah,
1: please don't. But it probably does bear saying that if you can't really remember The Lord of the Rings because you've not read or watched it in a while, then that's absolutely fine. We're hopefully going to provide enough detail that you don't need to do a big re-watch or reread just before listening to this show.
0: I'm loving this universe where people might be going off to reread Lord of the Rings before listening to our podcast. But yeah, hopefully we're going to provide enough detail that in no universe would you need to do that. No,
1: just punishing levels of detail. Should we get started?
0: Let's get cracking.
1: So the big question to kick things off, who is Merry? What's his deal?
0: So Merry is a hobbit from the Shire, he's a cousin and close pal of Frodo, the hero of Lord of the Rings and he's the son of Saradoc Brandybuck and Esmeralda Took, so that makes him cousins with Pippin aka Peregrine Took one of the four main hobbits in Fellowship of the Ring and he's a very jolly young hobbit.
1: Basically he's part of a bit of a double act with Pippin and the pair of them are generally more jolly and knockabout than Frodo and Sam but Merry is arguably the more perceptive and grounded of the pair, despite his fondness for pipeweed, ale and all the other usual hobbit faves.
0: Yeah, so it's Merry who's the ringleader of the so-called conspiracy to keep tabs on Frodo before he heads off on his quest at the beginning of the book, And when the four of them are making their way through the Shire and beyond it's Merry who's in charge of details like the horses and he's kind of handy in terms of navigation. I think he does get them lost in the old forest but he's at least the one with the mouse to know initially where they're going to be going.
1: Then at Rivendell him and Pippin end up being accepted into the fellowship, so they set out on the quest with the rest of the lads. Again, Merry is often less foolish than Pippin, who is forever messing up.
0: They're both around for all the key fellowship moments. They wind up fighting in Moria, meeting Galadriel, etc, etc. But then Merry and Pippin end up getting captured by the Uruks at the breaking of the fellowship.
1: They then escape and encounter a talking tree called Treebeard and the newly resurrected Gandalf the White.
0: Yeah, so big pals of the Ents.
1: Yes, so they get to Entmoot and there's a lot of farting about and indecisiveness from the trees before the Ents eventually destroy Isengard and Merry and Pippin are reunited with the surviving members of this fellowship, minus Frodo and Sam. It's here that Merry meets King Theoden, who's going to become a key player in this part of the story.
0: Sure is. And Merry actually ends up swearing to become a servant of Théoden, becoming his squire.
1: So there's a whole intrigue about uh, Merry wanting to fight alongside Théoden and his men, so he smuggles himself into the army to go fight at the Battle of Pelennor Fields. He fights bravely and winds up facing off against the Wish King of Angmar.
0: Yeah, this is Merry's big hero moment really, because it's here where he and Eowyn face off against the Witch King and it's Merry who actually stabs the Witch King, the Ringwraith.
1: Later on, Amf knights him and gives him the name Holdwinner and he also plays a key role in the Scouring of the Shire. He leads to battle at Bywater and uses the Horn of Rohan which is gifted him by Eowyn. So he's a big all-rounder hero, playing a key role several times and he sticks around for some stuff in the appendices too, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, rather sweet. He gets married, he becomes master of Buckland and he writes this whole volume about the Shire called Old Words and Names in the Shire and then later on he and Pippin go to Gondor and they're both buried there. So yeah, kind of cute hero's journey with less of some of the tragedy of somebody like Frodo in there.
1: So let's talk a bit more about what he's like as a character. First of all, who is he in the book, if we're just talking purely on the book?
0: Terms. So purely in terms of the book, he is a pretty resourceful character, especially for a hobbit. He's got, I would say, leadership skills. So when Frodo finds out that he'll need to be leaving the Shire with the ring in the book, that's quite a lengthy, protracted affair with an initial...
1: Extremely lengthy. F-
0: extremely lengthy. There's an initial fake-out where he's going to pretend to be moving back to the home of his his sort of fatherland where he originally came from with the brandy bucks in Buckland. So Mary, his cousin... Finds a nice, cozy hobbit hole for him in Quick Hollow and arranges the sale of all of his furniture. Yeah, he acts
1: as a kind of sort of auctioneer for all of his possessions, <laughs> isn't he?
0: Yeah, yeah, he's super helpful. He's Frodo's younger cousin, but he's got his head screwed on and he helps set up this house so that it looks like Frodo really is going to be moving there. And I'm going to read a tiny little bit that I quite like that I think illustrates Merry's character as a bit of a Mr. Mm Fix-It. So they rock up at Crick Hollow and they're knackered, they want a bath, Pippin says bath, oh blessed merry And Frodo says, you know, problem, which order should we go in, eldest first or quickest first, you'll be last either way, Master Peregrine. And Mary, Mr Fixit says, trust me to arrange things better than that, we can't begin life at Crick Hollow with a quarrel over baths. In that room there are three tubs and a copper full of boiling water. There are also towels, mats and soap. Get inside and be quick.
1: So he's like bossing it with the bath admin. It's just a testament to how organised he is and how at that point in the story is quite a leader type figure right
0: yeah and that night it's revealed that actually Frodo won't be sticking around at quick hollow he's got to get out now and Merry reveals that they actually already knew all about the ring and the quest and that there's been this conspiracy between his friends where Sam has been feeding info to them about Mm. the ring it's a benevolent conspiracy they want to help him Uh, and that's how they come on board into the whole story Quest the fellowship um it's very directed by mary and pip It's very intentional it's not like what we'll see later on in the films which we can talk about in a minute Mm -hmm. but when they set out mary as well is the person who decides that they're going to navigate through the old forest he thinks he knows the way he's been in the old forest before and the old forest is this terrifying land that the hobbits have heard lots of ghost stories about and Merry is the one who says look the old post is weird but the ghost stories are probably it not manage his. it <laughs> <laughs> like, we'll be fine yeah yeah, um, yeah so he's pretty brave for a hobbit and yeah, yeah. he's he's also a brandy buck and they have a bit of a rep the brandy bucks within the hobbits for being slightly odd for being a bit more adventurous than a regular hobbit mm. uh, I think the Bagginses subsequently have that reputation for being a bit weird but it only dates from Bilbo and Frodo yeah before Bilbo's mad dash to the Lonely Mountain in The Hobbit, the Baggins are an incredibly respectable mm. family of Hobbits. And actually it's the Brandybucks and the Tooks who have more of a reputation for being like, the kind that might occasionally go on an adventure.
1: Mm. And the Brandybucks like boats and water, right? So that's like differentiates them already from the rest of the Hobbits who are quite fearful about water
0: yeah, absolutely. Most of the Hobbits are pretty conservative. The brandy bucks are adventurous in all sorts of ways, including boating, and some of them can swim. And they also are responsible for for the name Tom Bombadil. <laughs> it's another way of, I think, talking, signaling their proximity to some of Middle Earth's weirder elements.
1: Yeah. It's quite difficult to talk about Merry in this context without also talking about Pippin, really, isn't it? Because their stories do kind of intertwine and bounce off each other throughout. I'm just thinking particularly later on when they both become essentially servants to human kings.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they both go down the old career path of becoming a servant to (laughs) a human king. Start on
1: a quest, end up servant to a human king. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, Until that point, Merry and Pippin, I don't think really appear without each other Hmm. very much at all. When Frodo first sets out from Bag End, he's only got Pippin and Sam with him and he doesn't meet up with Merry until they get closer to Crick Hollow. But it's quite rare to find Merry or Pippin existing independently of each other in the Lord of the Rings until the point at which they get separated and then go off and both become servants to kings.
1: Yeah, they have different experiences though, don't they, the two of them? In part because I think... Mary's relationship with Theoden is a is a lot more healthy or positive than than Pippin's with Denethor, which is a yeah. Mary kind of
0: lucks out. He gets to go to Rowan and yeah. gets to become pals with King Theoden, the uh-huh. good king. Pippin slightly shit a deal. He gets to go to Gondor, this besieged city from which you can see Mordor, yeah. with a mentally failing steward.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but both of them, yeah, they end up swearing allegiance to. To a king and 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 fighting. um,
0: I mean, technically, not even a king in
1: Pippin's case. It's really the
0: the rough end of the day. It's only a steward.
1: Steward, yeah. Um, But you know, they have they follow similar trajectories and and end up displaying kind of bravery that's that's unimaginable, really, at the start of the story. Um, Yeah,
0: far outstrips their stature in the world of Middle Earth at the start of the story. Middle Earth is barely heard of hobbits, never mind these two particular hobbits. And then they both go on to do things like, in Mary's case, slaying the witch king of Angmar, which is pretty baller, even for a big hero of the age.
1: Well, also, I guess they bridge a gap into a more... well, (laughs) there's a lot of weird stuff in Fellowship, but as the story progresses, they are sort of at the centre of the transfer over to high fantasy by... The encounter with the Ents, because by that point it's sort of like I don't know. The talking trees—do they present some sort of like bridge to to a higher form of fantasy, to a weirder form of fantasy? I don't know.
0: Ents and Tom Bombadil and Barrow White mm. and Old Man Willow are all part of quite a rustic tradition. They all feel very Middle English, mm. um, very English folk tale, quite. Dark folk tale at points, yeah, or yeah. something like Old Man Willow. Yeah, and Treebeard is the only one of those four that usually makes it into the adaptations. In mm. in most adaptations, you're losing Old Forest and
1: Bobberdil. The uh, stuff that sort of links it to kind of Gawain and Beowulf and all that stuff, I guess.
0: A lot of the Beowulf stuff is more. The, the world of men Man. of Rowan yeah, yeah, yeah. the you know the heroism, uh, heraldic devices, all of that stuff, and the folkloric stuff is the more natural elements. I and mean, Treebeard, if you if you're watching an adaptation that doesn't have Bombadil in or Old Man Willow in, he kind of comes out of nowhere.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like establishing a mystic kind of uh, relationship with trees and with woodland, and you know animals that can think and speak well not speak think certainly that's a very sort of outlandish thing to suddenly throw yourself into if you cut out all of the stuff in fellowship right
0: yeah and like the the moment when a fox sees four hobbits sleeping outdoors and thinks to himself uh, there's something mighty strange going on here, and Tolkien editorialises and says he was quite right, but he never found out anything more about it. That's <laughs> We're absolutely in a more fairy tale realm yeah. of talking trees and animals um, and all of that. And I think if you're watching an adaptation uh, that hasn't set up all of that stuff, the Ents and Treebeard does seem like it's come in a bit out of the left field potentially. Yeah. And I think one of the things you lose if you do cut out the Old Forest and the Barrow Downs is actually the Hobbits, what what they're like before they're part of a larger quest. Because they're not really established as heroes in a lot of the adaptations on their own terms, it is a little bit like, well, why don't they just give the ring to some more capable people? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to get them to go on the quest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. having said that, the hobbits get rescued twice by yeah, yeah. Bob by Tom Bombadil. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> they're not they're not um sort of sort of uh they're very sort of vulnerable in those early stages, aren't they? Like absolutely. they're always falling into trees and getting sucked into roots and all this stuff, yeah. <laughs> all the time. It's very weird. Like uh yeah.
0: And another key thing about the Barrow Whites adventure where the hobbits get trapped in a kind of mound underground by a a, a ghost, really, a barrow-white. Mm-hmm. A white is a, a, a word, an old English word for a ghost. Mm-hmm. And they get trapped in this tomb with all of this ancient jewellery and weaponry. It's, it's like those sort of Anglo-Saxon caches that get unearthed from time to time. Um, I think there's one at Sutton Hoo, mm-hmm. and they find almost like a little stash. And bombadil helps get them out of that and one of the things that results from that is him giving them swords and these swords have been wound about with spells for the downfall of the witch king of agmar which comes in pretty handy
1: yeah. save that thought for <laughs> yeah. Later. Yeah, yeah yeah hold
0: that thought <laughs> it's a integral part of Merry's narrative that he carries this sword all the way from the barrow Downs to the fields of Pelennor, like hundreds of miles away, and happens to come face to face with the one guy that this sword was designed to take down.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's
0: a key, it's a key moment for me. Shall we have a little reading from yeah. the text? So this is from relatively near the end of the book, and it's Mary's big moment on the fields of Pelennor, Uh, fighting the Witch-King of Aangmar, the leader of the Ringwraiths.
1: Out of the wreck rose the black rider, tall and threatening, towering above her. With a cry of hatred that stung the very ears like venom, he let fall his mace. Her shield was shivered in many pieces, and her arm was broken, she stumbled to her knees. He bent over her like a cloud, and his eyes glittered, he raised his mace to kill. But suddenly he too stumbled forward with a cry of bitter pain and his stroke went wide, driving into the ground. Mary's sword had stabbed him from behind, shearing through the black mantle and passing up beneath the hauberk had pierced the sinew behind his mighty knee. There's a discussion to be had, there, isn't there? Because uh, it's debatable whether Mary actually sort of is responsible for the death of the Witch King or if he lands the blow that then facilitates Erwin to do her final bit of stabbing but um yeah he definitely unseats the uh the witch king at that point doesn't
0: he yeah i think from the book's perspective the kill properly speaking belongs to mary although it is a team effort the reason that he's able to sneak up behind the witch king is because Aowen has him preoccupied and is bringing the fight to yeah. him so it's a team effort if if i if you had to Push me and say, like, who really gets the credit for taking down the Witch King? Well, I th- I think you have to give it to Mary. It's his sword that is specifically cited um a little bit later in the book as having been the only blade that could have taken apart apart the Witch King. We're obviously in the book realm here, and I think I would make a different case for it if we were looking at the Peter Jackson film. And mm. That is Eowyn's Kill there. Yeah,
1: yeah. But then also it feeds into a much wider thing in the book about um, maybe this is more for the Airwin episode, but it matches up with Airwin's whole trajectory after that battle, right? In the way that she changes and shifts her whole kind of focus away from being a warrior queen to being more swearing to be a maternal figure who's going to look after <laughs> trees and shit. You know, so really much very... for us to talk about that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but yeah, from Mary's point of view, I think if he was real, he would be pissed with the PJ version of yeah. his story because he's not as important. Um, it's, it is much more of a team effort. But then if you get into that idea of it's it's a team effort, they both did it, then it becomes also a much larger team because the only reason the two of them are able to get there is the charge of the Rehirim. Mm. So you can, I think, endlessly uh, hand out credit upon credit in a, an ever-widening kind of causal <laughs> circle. Yeah. And if you're trying to pin it down to just one person who gets to say they killed the Witch King of Angmar, I would go for Meridoc. Yeah. Brandybuck. Um, let me... I'll read the follow-up passage as well in case there's anyone who still needs convincing. Then he looked for his sword that he had let fall, for even as he struck his blow his arm was numbed, and now he could only use his left hand. And behold, there lay his weapon, but the blade was smoking like a dry branch that has been thrust in a fire, and as he watched it, it writhed and withered and was consumed. So passed the Sword of the Barrowdowns, work of Westerness. But glad would he have been to know its fate, who wrought it slowly long ago in the North Kingdom, when the Dúnedain were young, and chief among their foes was the dread realm of Angmar and its sorcerer King. No other blade, not though mightier hands had wielded it, would have dealt that foe a wound so bitter, cleaving the undead flesh, breaking the spell that knit his unseen sinews to his will. That is Mary's kill.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is like an extra level of clarity, isn't it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So on that note, shall we move on to talk about Mary in the radio and screen versions of Lord of the Rings? So adaptation Mary.
1: So for the sake of completism, we should just run through some of the various adaptations and uh, we should include, as we always do every week, the Loft to 1955 BBC 12 parter for RIP. radio, R.I.P., um, in which Mary is played by an actor called Michael Collins. Shout out to Michael Collins. Um, sadly, we will never hear his vision for the part.
0: I like um, to imagine Michael Collins was the definitive Mary <laughs>
1: Also hearing his vision is a nice is a nice mixed metaphor. Anyway, um, and then going on to the Bakshi version, the animated film from the late 70s. Um, Simon Chandler voices him there. We talked about the Bakshi adaptation before just some context for Simon Chandler. He's a British film, television, and theatre actor. This is me just looking him up. He often plays kind of authority figures like lawyers and members of parliament and senior civil servants, apparently. But yeah, that's Simon Chandler. Should we ever listen to what Simon Chandler does with the voice? Yeah,
0: let's get a Simon Chandler clip on deck from the nineteen seventy-eight Ralph Bakshi animated version. Here's a little bit of Meriadoc Brandybuck.
1: Sam didn't tell us about the ring, Frodo. I saw Bilbo use it once, before he went away, to hide from the Sackville Bagginses. And after that, Pippin and I kept on the lookout, and we followed you, and we asked questions everywhere. And we even wormed a few things out of Gandalf. And you spied on me. And Sam helped you. And we spied on you. But we meant no wrong to you, Mr. Frodo. Don't you remember what Mr. Gandalf said? Take someone as you can trust, he said. It doesn't seem that I can trust anyone. It all depends on what you want. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin, to the bitter end. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We're your friends, Frodo. Okay, so that was uh, Simon Chandler as uh, Merry in the Bakshi version. Sort of quite difficult to differentiate him from from Pippin, I'd say. They have quite similar voices, don't they?
0: Very slightly deeper and slightly more authoritative but they both have RP accents so they're slightly indistinguishable from each other I would say mm. you know no shade to Simon Chandler
1: mm-hmm and that's sort of reflected in the visual style as well right like they don't look hugely different <laughs> no, he's one slightly
0: another. lighter hair I think he's <laughs> slightly taller but yes. they're essentially a set
1: yeah So if we go chronologically and talk about the next adaptation, the 1979 Mind's Eye radio adaptation.
0: Mind's Eye American radio adaptation, a dramatisation. Yeah. In which Mary is played by an actor called Pat Franklin, which is part of a little Mind's Eye trope of casting women as hobbits. And why not? They, They do the same thing with Lou Bliss as Sam. And here we've got a clip of Merry and Pippin captured by Orcs, so a bad moment for Mind's Eye Merry.
2: I will have some fun later. Oh, Oh, hello Pippin. So you've come on this little expedition too? Where do we get bed and breakfast? None, None of that! Hold your tongues!
0: So not too bad, I don't think. I quite like Pat Franklin's efforts as Mary. Fun fact, Pat Franklin is the mum of Charlotte Hatherley, the bassist from the indie band Ash, who also had an excellent solo career.
1: We should touch on uh, a less uh, well-received animated film associated with (laughs) All the Rings, The Return of the King, the Rankin-Bass film from a few years later, in which uh, many of the actors playing... Roles from the Bakshi do carry over, but Mary isn't one of them.
0: Yeah, and Bakshi's nothing to do with it either. And you say less well-received than the Bakshi. The Bakshi wasn't that well-received. Yeah. Um, well, like but less. like the absolute pits, as yes. far as a lot of people are concerned, is this uh, Return of the King.
1: Yeah, in which he's voiced, uh, Mary is voiced by a very different actor called Casey Kasem. Sounds like a superhero. And he's, yeah, and the voice is much more... Well, it's just an American voice, isn't it? Should we <laughs> have a listen? American. Yeah, American. Yeah, good. Nice. Hail, Proud Mary! Hail,
2: Pippin! Bless you for a sure eye, old friend!
1: How good to see you! Bless you for bringing Theoden and his army! You've won the day for us! The less that's said about Casey Cassem, maybe the better. Yeah, sorry, um, Casey. And then. Going chronologically, we've got the 1981 BBC Radio 4 adaptation, where Mary is voiced by an actor called Richard O'Callaghan, a sort of stage and screen actor, maybe most famous for being in Carry On at your convenience. (laughs) Um, But let's have a listen to Mary in the Radio 4 version. He's gone! There is nothing there but a crown and an empty cloak. The Nazgul king is destroyed.
2: Mary, look to the king, your master. Theoden, my lord. Farewell, Master Holbutler. My body is broken. I go to my father's. And even in their mighty company... I shall not be ashamed, a grim morn, and a glad day, and a golden
1: sunset. Oh, forgive me, Lord, if I broke your command, and yet have done no more in your service than to weep at our parting. Just another Received pronunciation voice in a very, very old-school dramatisation where sometimes it's quite difficult to differentiate between the different voices, but at the same time... (laughs) all very clear. They're all doing a lot of work to make everything make sense orally.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of um, he is just an empty cloak, that kind yeah. of stuff that I guess radio dramatisations have to do to help mm. you make sense of what you would be seeing.
1: Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's a early 90s audiobook version which we always talk about, the Rob English version um, in which the Hobbits are largely undifferentiated <laughs> uh, in terms of both, all having sort of very similar voices. Yeah. Elizabeth, um, this have a of English doing Mary.
0: Okay. So yeah, jumping back a bit in the story from the Witch King of Angmar's death, this is from right at the beginning where Frodo is preparing to tell his friends that in fact he has to leave the Shire with the ring immediately. And they're about to reveal that they know a little bit more about that than he thinks they do.
2: Good heavens, said Frodo, I thought I'd been both careful and clever. "'I don't know what Gandalf would say. "'Is all the Shire discussing my departure then?' "'Oh, no,' said Merry. "'Don't worry about that. "'The secret won't keep for long, of course. "'But at present it is, I think, only known to us conspirators. "'After all, you must remember that we know you well, "'and are often with you. "'We can usually guess what you're thinking. "'I knew Bilbo, too. "'To tell you the truth, "'I'd been watching you rather closely ever since he left. "'I thought you'd go after him sooner or later. "'Indeed, I expected you to go sooner, "'and lately we've been very anxious. "'We've been terrified that you might give us a slip "'and go off suddenly, all on your own, like he did. "'Ever since this spring we've kept our eyes open "'and done a good deal of planning on our own account. "'Ah, you're not going to escape so easily.'
0: Yeah, uh, different from the others that we have looked at so far, I think it's the first one's bringing in that slightly more rustic burr mm-hmm. into Mary's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be that seems to originate with Rob Inglis. Mm-hmm. I think it makes sense in the terms of the characterization of the bucklanders as slightly more connected to nature they're into boating, they go into the old forest sometimes, so that idea that they're a little bit earthier, a little bit mm. dorset maybe, is creeping yeah, in there. More rural. um That's nice.
1: Yeah. And then leading on to the PJ version, so Peter Jackson's vision for Lord of the Rings, in which Mary is played by Dominic Monaghan.
0: Yes, and this is, I guess, for most people, classic Mary. Yeah. Uh, in his little waistcoat in uh lovely kind of yellow tones mm-hmm. he's a blonde hobbit let's have a little listen to the dominic monaghan take on the character you're taller who you Then what than me i've always been taller than you Pippin. everyone knows i'm the tall one you're the short one <laughs> please mary you're what three foot six at the most mm-hmm. It's supposed to stick it in the ground. It is in the ground! Outside? That was your idea!
2: <laughs> that was good. Let's get another one. Marriere Brandybuck. And Peregrine Took. I might have known.
1: We've
0: got the Shire. Maybe we should go.
2: The fires of Isengard will spread and the woods of Tuckborough and Buckland will burn and... and all that was once green and good in this world will be gone.
1: There won't be a Shire. particularly somber bit of Mary Particularly
0: somber bit of Mary. Um, One of, I guess, his more... It's not exactly a heroic moment in terms of action, but in terms of seeing the bigger picture, the way that we, I think, associate with more of the leadership-type characters in The Lord Mm -hmm. of the Rings. It's Mary stepping up and transcending his more suburban, myopic hobbit roots. Yes.
1: And it's also just a showcase for... The voice as well, like that sort of mixture of Dominic Mahone's more sort of uh, northern tones with this more portentous dialogue that Jackson's thrown in there with all of this sort of thing.
0: Yeah, very off book, that stuff, in the sense that it's... I I really don't think that Tolkien would have got along with all of that. that. Mm -hmm. But it's funny, because it's on message in terms of what the book is trying to say about having to go out into the wider world and fight Mm -hmm. your battles... But I don't think that that's how Tolkien would have put it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's, it's
0: much more Hollywood. There won't be a Shire Pippin.
1: So Dominic Monaghan, his first, maybe his first film role?
0: First known to the wider world for his role as Hetty Wainthrop's sidekick in Hetty Wainthrop Investigates. Oh really? Patricia <laughs> Routledge. Wow. I haven't seen his telefilm debut, so a television film called Hostile Waters, nineteen
1: ninety seven. Wow. He uh, been very young for that. I don't know how old he was when he was cast in this.
0: Well, twenties, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um and Hostile Waters is nineteen ninety seven, based on a true story of a Russian and American submarine collision in the cold war so we'll have to go and we'll have to check, check that out, out yeah, for a absolutely. bit of uh,
1: completism yeah i've got a bit of a weird dominic monaghan um side mission here actually um
0: <laughs> what's your side mission paul i
1: remember hearing his voice in a sitcom on bbc radio 4 in like 1997 98 something like that right uh, a sitcom called <laughs> stockport so good they named it once which was like a sort of (laughs) sitcom about a family in Stockport where he played one of the errant sons. I don't know how familiar you or our listeners are with the Radio 4 scheduling from the late 90s, but there used to be a...
0: Back back of my hand, top (laughs) of my mind.
1: (laughs) There was a slot at about 11.30 in the morning, exactly 11.30 in the morning uh, during weekdays, which would play the most abysmal, like, serial dramas and... sitcoms, so it's not like your 6.30 peak slot where you right. get your news quiz and you're, I'm sorry, I have no clue. There's like 11.30 in the morning after Woman's Hour, after whatever came between 11 and 11.30, I can't remember, some sort of human interest thing. Um, but, yeah, crap sitcom, and he was in it. So uh, To yeah.
0: me, 11.30 is the Diet Coke break. It's from that advert. 11.30, it's 11.30, Diet Coke break, Diet Coke break, and then a dishy man will come on and, like, clean your windows with the shirt off or something. So
1: it's not Stockport. To me, so it's not good Stockport they named it once <laughs> I, Oh, man, I wonder if we could dig out a clip. That would be amazing. Probably we'd have to go into some deep dive of, like, Radio 4. BBC uh, Archive. Requisitioning. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know the BBC are trying to do more with their archive because, of course, they've made a lot of amazing stuff that they don't get credit for and that people don't know about these days. Um, So maybe we can petition them for the revival of the 11.30 slightly indifferent sitcom slot and replay some old classics.
1: (laughs) That would be nice. Uh, But anyway, yeah, that was my frame of reference for Dominic Monaghan, even before Lord of the Rings came out. And then he... uh, sort of is, yeah, great in the role. Really fun. Like, the way they've written the character, obviously, is a bit of a change from the books in that they really play up the comedy of Merry and Pippin and sort of all the pipeweed stuff and just knockabout stuff. I always um,
0: get the sense with him and Billy Boyd that they just really loved the whole adventure I mean they're actors I'm sure they had grumpy days where they were really just over it but from the commentaries and the cast reunions when you'll see like a clip of them on stage or whatever just you get this just overwhelming sense of gratitude that they got to be part of this incredibly cool thing.
1: There's also of course Andy Serkis's audiobook recording of the whole of the Lord of the Rings where he for the most part, does quite admirable impressions of his castmates from the Peter Jackson films, doesn't he? Um, But in the case of uh, Mary, let's have a listen to his Mary.
0: Yeah, so here's uh, Andy Serkis as Mary um, in a bit that doesn't appear in the Peter Jackson film, where they're about to go into the old forest.
2: There, said Mary, you've left the shire and are now outside and on the edge of the old forest. Are the stories about it true? asked Pippin. I don't know what stories you mean, Mary answered. If you mean the old bogey stories Fatty's nurses used to tell him about goblins and wolves and things of that sort, I should say no. At any rate, I don't believe them. But the forest is queer. Everything in it very much more alive, more aware of what's going on, so to speak, than things are in the shire and the trees don't like strangers, they watch you. They're usually content merely to watch you, as long as daylight lasts, and don't do much. Occasionally the most unfriendly ones may drop a branch, or stick a root out, or grasp at you with a long trailer, but at night things can be most alarming, or so I'm told. I've only once or twice been in here after dark, and then only near the hedge, I thought all the trees were whispering to each other, passing news and plots along in an unintelligible language, and the branches swayed and groped without any wind. They do say the trees do actually move and can surround strangers and hem them in. In fact, long ago they attacked the hedge. They came and planted themselves right by it and leaned over it. But the hobbits came and cut down hundreds of trees and made a great bonfire in the forest and burned all the ground in a long strip east of the hedge. After that, the trees gave up the attack, but they became very unfriendly. There's still a wide, bare space not far inside where the bonfire was made.
1: It's a bit more kind of West Country than uh, Monaghan, isn't it? It sounds uh, like he's really leaned into that. Uh...
0: I think it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of like Circus actually gets more lines. As Mary in the circus adaptation of the Lord of the Rings the Dominic Monaghan got to do in Peter Jackson's trilogy of course because of the compression mm. so in a way Andy Serkis gets to play more of Mary than the guy who actually plays yes. Mary. <laughs> a <laughs> yeah. lovely long monologue all about uh, what the deal is with the old forest and some ancient history about oh. the forest being at war with them I'm Really love all of that stuff. It's it's fantastic that there's as of so recently, twenty twenty, this Andy Serkis complete recording of all of it. Mm-hmm. If we're going to talk about Mary's legacy, his scholarly studies of Old Toby and Pipeweed more generally. That's his big deal in mm. in the appendices. I mean, I like that Tolkien has this brain that just cannot stop with the end of a narrative to him. He's writing history, Mm -hmm. and history doesn't end. It's very hard for him to figure out where things start either, and he talks about it in the text, you know, the great stories never end, they continue, the light of the starglass from Galadriel that she gives to Frodo contains some of the light of the Silmarils, it's all connected. For Tolkien, Mary's kind of ongoing legacy is this uh, study of smoking which is obviously a bit smaller than the idea of Silmarils and high heroism, but it's still just as important. It's it's this, this earthiness and this uh, respect for traditional humble ways of living that runs deep throughout Tolkien.
1: Mm. Mm. Then I guess there's also the coexistence of uh, a story in which um, little people from a special place called the Shire can have all kinds of mad, semi-mystic adventures with a strange godlike creature who lives in the woods, um, and that also coexisting with this kind of high fantasy stuff at the end of the story where it's all, you know, the rights of kings and all of this sort of high high fantasy. Um, if it
0: went through a conventional execing process, I think any executive producer working with Tolkien directly on this story would have said, Look, you need to decide what you want this to be. Is this <laughs> like the hobbit to the sequel in which case why have we got like Sauron, the servant of morgoth yeah. and all of that stuff happening uh or is it a whole new story and it is about lost kings returning after generations to fulfill their noble ancestors destiny in which case lose the hobbits guy <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah
0: and I mean, as we've seen from all of the adaptations, like most of the Talking Trees and uh, Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Whites and all of that weirder folkloric stuff tends to go apart mm. from the Ents because otherwise, how do you deal with Saruman? People mm. have to leave that in because it's how Isengard gets destroyed. But clearly, if that wasn't how Isengard got destroyed, people would leave the Ents out of the adaptation. It's not mm. a bit that people look forward to I don't think, I think you can tell that with the way Peter Jackson has talked about Treebeard. Beards. Like if, if they could have cut him, <laughs> they'd love to have cut him.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And yet, Tolkien weaves all of those things in together. And I think that's actually just one of the things that I really like about his mythos, is that it can contain all of these things that don't really quite fit together, because that's what history's like.
1: Yeah, pausing to have a song every few pages and just <laughs> yeah, sitting around. Um...
0: Does Mary get a song? I feel like he might be one of the characters that doesn't.
1: Really, in the film annotations, they have him singing sort of like pub songs and stuff like that, don't they? <laughs> yeah, but that's sort of but, s- a bit separate from oh, all the that's Callan. nineteen pages long. <laughs> the
0: bit where he and Pippin are going full Chumbamumber in like, <laughs> the golden halls of Rivendell.
1: Yeah. So, f- lasting thoughts from f- about Mary.
0: Abiding thoughts about, about Mary. Thoughts. I think if he had if, if you had to bang a Hobbit, maybe that one.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. Like probably the most fun of them. <laughs> like, you're not getting anything out of Frodo. Like, maybe just the nobility of it. Cheers. <laughs> Sam, no. Absolutely not. Um, and then Pippin, yeah, I don't know.
0: I think we've gone, like, way more into this sidebar of what was meant to be a throwaway joke now we're actually talking about which Hobbit you'd have sex with, but... Uh... Rosie, to be clear. Oh, Rosie. Rosie. Co- oh, Rosie co- yeah. <laughs> so I think it's time... For the highlight every week of this podcast, my personal highlight anyway, how, how do you feel about the Page Off? I'm board? feeling good
1: about it, feeling positive.
0: <laughs> so this is our competitive game, the Page Off, and all you need to play this game is uh, any copy of Lord of the Rings and any method you care to choose of generating a random quote from Lord of the Rings.
1: It works like this, we generate a random quote from Lord of the Rings and then we each have to guess what page number that quote comes from
0: and then i win
1: yeah and then each week Catherine wins
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're trying to score zero in this game so the closer you get to the correct page number the fewer points you score if you're 50 pages off you score 50 points if you're five pages off you score five points which would be a
1: pretty good score and it's basically the aim to cumulatively have the lowest score possible as we go week in week out and uh, perhaps you could catch us up with where we currently sit in terms of the point assignment
0: so currently Paul I believe I'm on 223 points and Paul is on 354 points which in any normal game I uh, feel like that would mean Paul was in the lead but do you want to just explain one more time for anyone who didn't catch it whether you're supposed to score high or low in this
1: um, game? I'm glad that you asked me to do this because just to be clear unlike most games in this game if you've got a high score that's bad so actually my score is bad.
0: Yes, your score is bad and my score is good.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, let's see what the outcome of this week's page off will be.
0: I will generate us a quote.
1: Your time may come. Do not be too sad, Sam. You cannot be always torn in two. You will have to be one and whole for many years. You have so much to enjoy and to be and to do. End of the story.
0: I think you right. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: so Frodo bidding farewell to Sam
0: it's also this kind of reference I guess to the fact that Sam is married but also sort of loves Frodo so much Yeah, yeah. (laughs) he's like go go and be with your family for Christ's sake (laughs) enjoy some family time yeah so and as, as Frodo says your time may come Sam does eventually join him at the Grey Havens but it's many many years down the line after his wife Rosie passes away and after he's been the mayor of Hobbiton a million times. Mm. So what do we think, page number-wise?
1: Uh, I think we're in the late 900s. So maybe a 1,000.
0: Could be a 1,000. Yeah, uh, the appendices tip over a 1,000, but we're not quite in the appendices.
1: No, so maybe it's a bit earlier. Maybe more like 950, 960, something like that.
0: I'm going to go 990.
1: Okay, I'm going to go 960.
0: Let's find out.
1: Let's find out.
0: I'm gonna let you do the the honors with the book.
1: Okay. What did we say? Nine ninety. I said nine
0: ninety. You said nine.
1: All right. So you said nine sixty. Was it? Nine sixty. Yeah. Nine ninety is still in the Scouring of the Shire. Oh. So it's in the tail end of all that business. And then so nine sixty. Fucking hell, probably still back on Mount Doom. Um, (laughs) uh, Many partings. So it's just Elrond. Yeah, reuniting with Treebeard. So yeah, if we go to where it actually is, the appendices start on page one hundred one thousand and eight, and
0: then... I've got to be bloody close then.
1: Yeah, you're so, so close. So yeah, we're actually on page 1006, which puts you... Um, 16 points. 16 points. And me, 56, I think. They... <laughs> yeah. Is it 56? Uh... Or is it, no, 46
0: delighted to announce paul as you're such a fan of flat numbers you're now on 400 points
1: i'm overwhelmed with joy that puts me on the opening page of return of the king <laughs> <laughs> the fucking title page two towers oh yeah two towers sorry <laughs> uh and i'm on
0: 239 pretty pretty sweet score
1: pretty sweet score
0: i'm being a very ungracious winner oh, i think a, it's
1: fine it's fine
0: real sore winner
1: winners win losers go home
0: <laughs> love this game it's a great game thank you for listening to Not Another Fucking Elf a Lord of the Rings character guide podcast by me Catherine Bray
1: and me Paul Ridd we are a self-produced podcast so please follow us at Not Another Elf on all good social media platforms and it would be great if you could give us not one not three not seven but five stars for Mortal Podcasts on your podcast app
0: thanks to Tommaso Alietti for handling our digital bits and bobs Anthony Ng for our jingle, Charlie Shackleton for our cover art, and anyone else who helped us out along the way.
1: Much appreciated. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders, and we strongly urge you to go out and buy the 1978 Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings, the 1979 Mind's Eye radio adaptation, the 1980 Rankin Bass Return of the King, the 1981 BBC Radio Lord of the Rings, 2001 New Line Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings and the 1990 Rob Inglis and 2020 Andy Serkis Lord of the Rings audiobooks, both from HarperCollins.
0: And by the book! There are so many nice editions of the book out there. We also recommend the Humphrey Carpenter biography as a starting point if you're curious about the life of the man himself and the collected letters also collated by Humphrey Carpenter with Christopher Tolkien.
1: Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss next week when we're looking at a certain female character, which, let's be honest, massively narrows things down. So that's your clue for next week.
0: This has been Catherine Bray.
1: And I'm Paul Ridd.
0: And that's it for now. That's the end of the podcast. Here is the heart of Elvendom on Earth, and here my heart dwells ever.